Founded in 1892 by Thomas Edison with the backing of J.P. Morgan, General Electric has been a stalwart of American business for most of its history. Sprawling over a multitude of industrial divisions, including electric turbines, jet engines, locomotives, and medical devices, the conglomerate outperformed its rivals in the 1980s and 90s by a wide margin. But in the 2000s, a series of bad deals and allegations of accounting fraud led to GE being delisted from the Dow Jones Industrial Average in 2018, after having been its longest-serving member since 1907. Tonight we discuss how this storied institution got to this point, and what it portends about the state of American industry as a whole. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. The military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time, Hello! Welcome back to Myth of the 20th Century Podcast. My name is Hans Launder. Uh, tonight I am joined by Mr. Adam Smith. Hey everyone. And Mr. Uh, Nick Mason. Hello! Uh, we are uh, three of us here gathered, although our good friend Hank Oslo might, uh, might join in uh, sooner or later tonight. Uh, uh, kind of just going with more of a free-flowing show uh, this evening. I think we kind of want to talk about some stuff uh, currently going on in America, as well as uh, uh, one of America's uh, formerly darling industrial giants, uh, General Electric. But uh, first, uh, Adam, do we have any donations or any uh, housekeeping items we need to yeah, address? Um, as far as I could tell, we just got uh, two uh, donations on the blockchain for Bitcoin. Um, they're both very generous. So, uh, again, if anyone wants a free copy, if they donate of, uh, that little book I wrote last year, just email myth 20 C at two com, or find us on Twitter or whatever. Uh, we always appreciate it. And, um, yeah, back to you. Let's talk about, I guess, GE or America. <laughs> well, does it about, even, uh, does it even matter some, some anymore? Stuff that, that- that came out today, somewhat related. Uh, it came out today that uh, there will be a White House executive order banning uh, further H-1B visas for the remainder of the year, at, very, at the very least. You know, I saw that, and I'm like, did Trump get the message when no one showed up to his rally that yeah. people are fed up with his all talk and no action? And he literally said that during the campaign about the opposition, about the establishment. They're all talk and they don't do anything. Well... What the hell have you done other than sign a couple of tax cuts and not bomb the hell out of a few countries, but bomb a little bit out of a few countries that how is it any different really than the establishment? And I get it. You know, he's he's doing this and that and the deep state is doing this and that. But we really just have no very little progress. 
So I'm I'm surprised. I mean, I remember you know he was he tweeted this uh, this statement where he was going to stop all immigration. This was a, like a month ago, and it went nowhere. Um, so I don't know. I don't even want to get into it because it's it's like what's what's the point? But well, you think I, it's going to go somewhere? Yeah, well, I, I think it will. Um, so to give a little bit more insight, uh, uh, H1B visas uh, are, have been sort of corrupted. Uh, Michelle Malkin wrote an entire book on this subject, um, and some others have as well. Uh, certainly, I would say Mark Krikorian has done good work on this, Numbers USA. Uh, a recent body that's kind of come out of the blue um, would be U.S. Tech Workers, which seems to be some kind of political group, um, nonprofit political group that's done a lot of great uh, local and uh, kind of behind the scenes grassroots work with uh, white collar professionals, uh, predominantly technical workers. Um, recently, there was a story, I think, about the Tennessee Valley Authority, which is technically partially government owned, uh, or strangely enough. Uh, coming out and actually saying that they would be forcing uh, a number of new labor changes to happen. Number one, they would be definitely offshoring or outsourcing uh, to foreign companies, not American companies, but foreign companies. Uh, They tried to provide this argument that those foreign companies have offices or holdings in the United States, and that's where the work would go, but there's no guarantee of that. Uh, Secondly, there was definite talk of Many employees, engineers, not only of computer engineers, electrical engineers, uh, maintenance staff officers, everyone down the chain for what you need to run a kind of electrical powerhouse like the TVA, uh, they would be uh, replaced and uh, with H-1B visas, and they'd have to train their new replacements to receive a rather generous severance package. Um, well, I think that this recent drama along with multiple years of accumulated drama in this field, has kind of uh, led to an, an inevitability where there's now sort of more and more widespread support, uh, particularly in younger people, younger Americans who are going into these fields, that this sort of visa program needs to be halted, uh, or at least amended. Um, now, kind of to give you the brief history of it, uh, this is from the you know, H-1Bs or the H-1 visa program is actually a, a remnant from the 1950s originally, uh, 1952. Uh, now, this was a different era in America. In America at the time, we were not interested in importing tons of people from the third world, from Asia, um, from much of the world really, uh, to work here or to even be here. Uh, most people were not interested in that. Well, it, it was even to the point where there would be workers working in agriculture in Southern California, places like that, uh, and they would be on. It was the Bracero program that was something FDR signed, I think, during the Depression, which sort of makes no sense. I think actually, no, I, I correct that. I think that was during the war, but after the war, um, Eisenhower kicked them out. Operation Wetpack, literally called Operation Wetpack, it's just to right. show you how different the culture was back then. Well, yeah, and so this this comes from that sort of post-World War II era. But the original idea uh, 
was that Congress actually went over the head of Truman doing this. Even Truman uh, was against this sort of thing. Uh, But in so in the original idea was that um, if you had someone from the from overseas who had a skill or a service or something that was, quote, of exceptional nature. Then they would be that would be reviewed and then they might be granted a visa. And again, in the 1950s, you did not yeah, have like someone visa. who's getting us, uh, you know, a rocket ship to the moon, maybe. Right. Right. Exactly. I'd be okay so, with that. So this is this is uh, really what this was. If you look at the politics at the time, was this was uh, an idea to mostly attract smart people from uh, predominantly Europe, uh, certainly just the Western Eurasia in general, I guess. Uh, and this was due to the fact that the European economies were in shambles, although quite a few smart people still lived in Europe. And the idea was to provide them an ability to contribute in some way to the United States for American companies to have access to that contribution. Now, this was not tied to a a visa that would allow you to live here indefinitely. There was no stipulation that it could be renewed indefinitely. The companies had to provide an exceptional amount of reasoning why they were bringing these people in, obviously for security reasons due to uh, Cold War ideological concerns. Uh, so it was just a, from a very different era, but it was mostly designed for exceptional cases, and that's even in the, the legal lettering of this uh, of this legislation. For those small uh, niche instances where you need just that boost that someone in America just doesn't have or have yet. Uh, and now it's morphed into a institutionalized industry of transplanting hundreds of thousands of people annually to the country to add to the workforce. Um, in the 1950s, I can assure you that no one, no one thought there was going to be a massive lobbying industry, uh, you know, third-party country uh, firms that specialized in tailoring these visa applications, which is what exists in China and India and Indonesia, uh, all around the world now. Uh, These kinds of things just did not exist. Uh, And there was probably no real idea that they could exist, that probably would have seemed very far-fetched because the prevailing notion in the 1950s was uh, why wouldn't you stay in your own economy for the most part and build up your own economy that most nations of the world were actually basically incentivized to do that. You saw that with the Marshall Plan. You saw that with various other uh, uh, incentives provided to many countries around the world in the 50s and 60s by the United States was the idea that they should actually build up their own economy. They should keep their people at home and they should try and build their own industry. Um, well, in the 90s, uh, George H.W. Bush, um, former CIA director, uh, basically recreated that law. Now, George Bush is the reason why we have a difference between the H-1A the H-1B. 
H1A was created for nurses. Uh, so all uh, this H1A program and other programs, many of which are too numerous to name, uh, and there's all kinds of loopholes within those programs, but effectively what this helped create was this massive pipeline from, again, much of the third world into the American healthcare sector. Um, so people have noticed, especially in our sphere, that you have this overabundance of nurses from West Africa, from the Philippines, from Thailand, uh, some from Eastern Europe. Uh, now, this has led to dubious results in the quality of healthcare, but this is how that program got started. Uh, effectively, in the 1990s, there was a decision made, I guess, in the post-Cold War environment that America no longer really needed to protect its industries, protect its people. It had won the war, it had won global dominance. And so uh, the concerns of, iso of isolation and Fortress America were of yesteryear. Um, and then on top of that, this is how we get the H-1B visa program. So the H-1B visa program gets refined from uh, of exceptional nature to specialty occupation. So this is a very important legalistic trick that got invented specifically for this program was now if your occupation is special, if it's technical or there's some aspect to it that is uh, you know, more profound than I guess being a plumber or whatever, uh, then that meant that you could then apply for visa status. And so this is when we see the beginnings of countries around the world, now that the Cold War is over, uh, seeing America as opportunity and an, a place to go work. Uh, and this is also uh, coincidentally around the time that we have uh, the you know, beginning of the rise of the American tech giants uh, as they exist now, 30 years later. Uh, this is around the time we have the beginning of many changes in the American economy that uh, maybe would not have developed um, had there not been this um, certainly strange infusion of foreign labor. And also uh, the 90s was really when income inequality, family formation, household accumulation, capital accumulation, all these things just completely started to fall apart. But the 90s was seen as kind of an era of good feeling, but in reality, the, the signs of rot were really beginning to become apparent then. Um, so the 1990s is basically why we have this program now, 30 years later, that has contributed to a great deal of um, misallocation, mismanagement, um, improper termination of employment, whatever you want to call it, uh, of the labor market for uh, specialty occupations. And what that generally means is, uh, is everything in the, in the computer realm. Um, so computer-related occupations constitute almost 70% of all H-1Bs. Um, architecture and engineering come in second as you know, broad categories. So much of uh, a specific industry in the United States, it's also one of the still one of the best paying industries, one of the industries that can um, certainly allow you to build up savings, 
maybe have a family, build up marketable skills that's in high demand. Um, is also an industry where Americans, uh, American students, young Americans, old Americans uh, have the most competition. And that is with a massive foreign labor market that, uh, that can be imported any time um, with various loopholes by large conglomerates. Um, and so these people are allowed to stay in the United States for three years. Uh, and obviously many of them end up uh, extending because these people come from um, pretty horrible places that uh, I, I can't imagine they want to go back to once they experience some of life here. Um, and so most of the large tech companies are predominantly why this program continues to behave the way it does. Although I think that um, there is a great deal of misallocated blame towards just the tech conglomerates. Plenty of companies that are not traditionally tech companies use H-1B visas uh, for computer-related jobs, for architecture and engineering jobs, for all kinds of other work. Um, these com- you know, there are many modern companies have to have these roles filled for various reasons, and they too apply for H-1B visa status uh, as often as possible. In fact, I worked the last company I worked at had uh, at least two people who were H-1B. Um, I have to say, was never quite impressed with the quality of of, uh, of that work. But th- that company was not a tech company. Um, it really was not a tech company at all. But these people were brought in to do some of the technical work. Uh, and one of them even uh, led an entire department at one point. So uh, I, I think that the, the notion of this being for that talented niche worker is no longer the reality. Now it's clearly a way in which U.S. companies can avoid providing health care, uh, avoid providing uh, a good relationship with their employee. They understand the employee has family concerns, has a life outside work, that kind of thing. Uh, it seems to be uh, now about creating a permanent work class that can be used and molded for whatever is needed. Um, so the Trump administration has kind of come out and try to put an end to that, at least for the remainder of the year, given that 40, 50 million people are that we know of are currently unemployed. Uh, so I think that on top of that, we are seeing uh, H-2B visas, which are, of course, the, uh, uh, the landscaping jobs, the things like that, the guys who come to your lawn, um, as well as uh, you know J-1 jobs, L-1 visas, all these kinds of things that are apparently on the block, uh, as well as several loopholes. Um, so ultimately, I think that this is a, a step in the right direction. Um, history has shown us since the 90s that this has been very, very disastrous uh, for the American economy. I think for the average American worker, it certainly, I think, um, prevented a lot of Americans from going into these fields, getting out of their student debt faster and starting lives sooner. And I think that ultimately you're seeing a lot of social ills in America uh, because a lot of people genuinely feel like they have no uh, no responsibility, no future, no ability to make money, uh, pay off their debt, start a real life. Uh, and, you know, so 
bringing this sort of thing to an end, coming back to that tradition uh, in the history of America, which is protecting the American uh, worker, protecting the American professional class even, uh, I think is probably a, a decent step in the right direction. If I can give my two cents on this, um, I agree this is an improvement. Um, I don't necessarily agree this has always been how America has worked. Honestly, the sort of um, catchphrase, you know, we're all immigrants, isn't wrong uh, on a long enough time scale. Uh, but there have been ebbs and flows, and there was a period prior to the war, prior to the Depression, where there was uh, quite a bit of restrictions on immigration, and after the war, it was like that. Uh, and those were times when the middle class was doing quite well. Uh, the only time this stuff uh, starts creeping back in, it's basically cheap labor. Uh, that's really what I think is the, the common thread throughout American history when you have large immigration waves like this coming in to do work, whether it's uh, black Africans to do uh, plantation-type work or the indentured servants uh, doing similar things in the East Coast in the colonial era or it's the southern and eastern Europeans coming into the big cities to build all the buildings and work in the factories in the Midwest, uh, or now from the southwest and from Asia uh, to do the uh, sort of manual labor and uh, tech work, respectively. Uh, it's, it's when I think the economy is strong enough so that people can be lulled into the complacency whereby... They legislate allowing this type of immigration. When things get bad, I think there is a political uh, opportunity for politicians to roll it back somewhat. But when you say it's good for the economy, that's sort of where people debate. Because on one hand, and I, would, I think we would agree on this, the economy is really here to serve the people uh, and their interests in the sense that uh, you know they have to be able to create goods and then receive goods, but also have an opportunity to work at the same time. Uh, and I think that creates a stable, healthy society. Uh, but when it comes to the companies that were benefiting off of this, the tech sector do was doing quite well uh, after uh, the 80s through the 90s. There was the, there was the tech burst, uh, but that only really lasted for a few years. Uh, and then I, I don't know exactly how the H-1B uh, phenomenon ties into the success of Silicon Valley, but Silicon Valley has done quite well. Now, one could argue that it has been to the exclusion of many Americans. And statistically, that's very apparent. In Silicon Valley, the majority of the tech workers are foreign-born. Uh, I believe it's around 60%. But the, um, the companies are doing fine. And there are some Americans who work there, but they are in the minority. And that's, I think, where a lot of people start like wondering, okay, at what point do I get a share of this? And if nobody's you know, getting, or the majority of Americans aren't getting a share, it, it seems like a raw deal. And I think that's uh, where you're coming from. And I think I'm surprised, frankly, that this is even getting pushed through. I guess it's because of Corona, but I mean, the guy ran on this stuff and again, he's had four years, you know, what, what, what has been taking so long is really what I would say. But, um, yeah, I think it's just the election and the virus and stuff. So, Well, I would say to that that the American computer industry took off 
on its own. Like it, it there, you know, when the American computer industry really got going, uh, and the foundations for it as well, there was not a great deal of immigration in the labor market. That was a predominantly, genuinely, it's a lot of defense spending too. Homegrown thing. I mean, the the biggest, I guess, immigrant you can say is involved in one of those big kind of foundational tech projects was Brian Kernigan, who uh, was one of the men behind the C language and Unix, but he was uh, Canadian. I mean, so I don't, I don't really, the way I look at it, you know, <coughs> most of, most of the American tech industry has its roots in a time when, you know, these kinds of visas were certainly not permitted very much. Uh, it was very, very much just Americans who yep. decided to get into this industry and made it into what it is, like Fairchild Semiconductors. Yeah. Fairchild Semiconductors I don't disagree, have right? no H-1B visas. <laughs> I, I know that. and But also, you've, you've got to keep in mind that the trade barriers were much higher. There was, That's true. Uh, it was a new industry, and, so, and the internet really wasn't a thing. And so people couldn't learn this stuff unless they were in the universities, in the labs, in the corporate labs, in that environment. Uh, so it's much harder to uh, disseminate this stuff cheaply, and therefore the, the first movers had a lot of an advantage. And they also, again, the Cold War provided the impetus for a lot of uh, government funding for a lot of these mainframe and mini computer style models yeah. of architecture. And then when it got into the microcomputing and personal computing and then mobile, uh, it really kind of took off because the cost curve dropped to the point where, you know, emerging markets were interested and, and all that. But that's really jumping ahead. And I think probably should bring it back to General Electric. I mean, uh, maybe a transition is to say that this company has been around forever. Uh, you know, we're not going to go into, I think, too much of the history, but just to sort of bridge what we're talking about now, General Electric was actually involved in the computer industry for a brief period in the 80s. Yes. At least they tried and they, they had to sell it off because they just couldn't make it work. And their model is sort of, I think, something we should maybe discuss because the uh, conglomerate approach uh, has not really been in favor in a long time. And they're one of the few companies that continues to have that concept going. Uh, but that computer example was one where they just couldn't make it work uh, and they had to, they had to spin it off. Um, well, uh, I, actually I, in my, kind of my research, I had found that cause I was curious, like had GE ever tried to get into the computer industry? Yeah. Um, and they did. And so, found this like one piece of history which is kind of interesting so they had uh, a, a really great uh vision in the late 50s and the early 60s and so th this time period is known as uh i guess snow white and the seven dwarfs or it's kind of thought of as that uh so ibm was the snow white control cdc uh honeywell rca univac ncr and ge are considered the dwarves um, so, of course, IBM, the original American tech company, uh, was the predominant computer player for what would you say, Adam, from like the 1930s till the mid 80s? Um, yeah, I, I yeah. think I think when the Wintel uh, duopoly sort of became a thing, I mean, Apple was challenging them in the early you know, 80s, but 
they just didn't really um, matter that much uh, yeah. until the uh, the offices started buying computers for every desk, and that was that was really kind of the mid to late eighties. Yeah, so yeah, I think that's right. Um, so GE got into this business, uh, and and at first the computer division obviously was selling to a niche audience at the time, fifties and sixties. Uh, certainly, unlike what GE was predominantly making uh, at that time, household appliances, trains, nuclear reactors, planes, engines. Well, jet uh, engines, not jet, planes. Jet, not yeah, planes. jet engines. Uh, they, they were making um, all kinds of chemicals. You know, uh, you know they had a, like a massive industry, actual industry beyond this. Yeah. Um, but they jumped into this this computer game and so I guess their biggest accomplishment was they went to Bank of America and they built this Irma system that could automate uh, check clearing. And they were the first ones to figure this out, how to like you know, how to com- you know, computerize and automate check clearing for a bank. Were they using uh, optical character recognition or no? I'm assuming yes. <laughs> I don't know how old they are. I don't know. I mean, well. Wizards. I mean, I will say that like. Yeah, the, the the computer engineers of the 1950s and 60s. You, if you think you're smart, you have no idea how smart these guys. Oh, for were. sure, these, they were dealing guys, with like yeah. uh, one horsepower equivalent engines. They had, yeah. uh, I mean, just to make car analogies, uh, they, there was no electronics to guide them. It was all mechanical. I mean, in this context it sort of was but they they no really had a window you, you didn't have the internet stuff. to look things up you didn't have all these libraries that were already there you really had to kind of get close to the metal to solve these you, problems you and had to was, write these like really complex but also slim recursive algorithms to like <laughs> yeah because the computer use, would like uh, throw up a very limited amount of compute computational power you had yeah so they um so ge came up and this is just in the long history of GE as being a, a kick-ass innovator, kind of similar to uh, Bell Labs. Uh, but they uh, they created this magnetic ink character recognition standard. And that's the MICR is still used today for checks. Um, and this is something that... So they would uh, actually be able to read the embedded yeah. numbers, but how would you read what someone normal would write on a check? Cause I mean, they're not using like magnetic ink as far as I know. Um, I have, I don't, I have no clue. I must maybe in, maybe this is for certain kinds of checks. Hmm. Uh, but again, 1950s computer wizardry, they, they figured it out somehow. Yeah, uh, pretty cool. They literally like trapped an ancient Altaic entity in that, uh, that computer to do it. I have no clue. Um, so in 64, they attempted to get into the like wider computer market, but apparently GE decided, uh, and I couldn't really figure out uh, why this happened, but they decided that the computer division by the late sixties was actually not making enough money. And they sold it, ironically, to Honeywell in 1970. In 1970, Honeywell, which has become kind of the arch nemesis of GE, um, 
was a much smaller player on uh, on the engineering scene, and they sold it off because the assumption was uh, computers are never going to be uh, very financially viable, uh, which is interesting because for a company that had many firsts and had a lot of great successes and always seemed to understand what the market needed, um, this is one of the few areas where you could say maybe one of the greatest missed opportunities of all time because GE certainly in the late 60s uh, when it's at its peak, uh, could have owned much of the computer revolution that was going to take place just like five years later and start taking place in the 1970s and then the early 1980s. GE could have been like the predom- one of the predominant computer manufacturers uh, in the market had they sort of stuck with this R&D, said, okay, it's going to lose money for a while, but something will come out of it. Uh, for whatever reason, GE uh, just decided it was not part of the core business model, and the core business model was industrial, and therefore uh, uh, we should move away from this. Uh, now, of course, Honeywell also did not become, in the end, a large computer player. Uh, in fact, if you look at Ironically, if you look at this, these seven, I never heard this before I read this, but the Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, uh, CDC no longer exists. Uh, RCA got bought by GE later on. Univac is gone. NCR, never even heard of that. that they're gone. Uh, and so really the only... Wait, 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 wait. Are you sure? Uh, that's National Cash Register uh, Corporation. I don't think they're gone unless oh, they're still, okay they I, were I around you know a few years ago cash register then I, i'm wrong but the only company to survive this like era uh i guess is ibm and ge to an extent now ironically both of these are companies in uh relative decline today uh ibm i believe just laid off four thousand more american workers a week or two ago uh, GE as well, going through some serious financial problems. They, they laid off 12,000 under their last CEO, which was yeah. like two years ago. But um, I don't know what the latest round was. Uh, well, I think this this was like an, you know, one of their various corona layoffs. I, mean, I, I don't know. Um, I think that, I, you know, off topic, but IBM actually might have a good future. The, uh, the CEO of Red Hat is... I think next in line to become CEO of IBM. Uh, Red Hat is actually an innovative and good company that does decent things and mostly hires American, actually. Uh, so it could be a good future for IBM, slim down, get back to the basics. Uh, but GE, the once great American darling, which is what we're kind of trying to talk about, uh, hit a bit of a rough spot. There um, <laughs> were accusations last year of uh, tens of billions of dollars in accounting fraud, mayhaps, um, from the man who caught Bernie Madoff. Uh, There have been accusations of uh, stock manipulation, accusations that uh, GE uh, keep, uh, they've fired or removed or had CEOs leave left and right uh, the last few years. They've had C-suite uh, problems. Everyone keeps coming and going. Uh, have you people come back? And it's a uh, kind of a disaster 
Uh, and there's been this big crisis, uh, and it kind of defines America as well, I think. What is General Electric? Like, what is this company going to be? Is this an industrial company? Is this a company that makes things, manufactures things, sets standards, comes up with industrial systems? Or is this just a kind of amorphous conglomerate that owns share stakes in all kinds of businesses and masks it to investors as well? It's horizontal growth to help the core business. Um, this is, again, I, I think a real crisis for the company. And again, you know, shows the crisis in America. What are we going to do? What is the point of all this? Are we going to make something? Or are we uh, going to pretend to make things? Um, so GE uh, really is the product of the, uh, the Gilded Age in America. So started, obviously, many of you maybe know this tale, by the illustrious uh, Thomas Edison. Now, uh, Thomas Edison, uh, often, I think, colloquially known as the man who invented the light bulb, uh, created General Electric Company, and he basically existed in this golden era of American manufacturing, the era of 1880-ish to about 1920-ish, uh, the second industrial revolution for the United States, and of course, the era of many of the great names of American industry, uh, Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, Carnegie, and uh, obviously Edison. Now Edison uh, became a sort of controversial figure later on, but GE, like Westinghouse uh, and like other companies uh, at the time, were basically what you would call industrial research laboratories. Now these were very popular especially around the turn of the century. Once the 20th century got kicked off, these became very popular because you had a lot of people coming into the city. You had, uh, you had a lot of accumulation of talent into a singular place, and you could create these. There was plenty of urban land left to develop. So you could cheaply create these big laboratories, effectively big offices or warehouses, where you could have dozens of people with all kinds of equipment and raw materials uh, working on and inventing products. Uh, and often, uh, just given the nature of the economy at the time, this was not too costly of an endeavor, and they could get by by selling products that people wanted or doing custom jobs while continuing to work on um, various pet projects. Now, of course, this tradition at GE went on to, I think, all the accumulated employees and the company as a whole holding like 67,000 patents, if I remember correctly. Um, massive amount of patents, massive amount of innovation has come out of the people uh, at the company. Uh, and so this tradition goes back a ways. And the idea was always this, uh, this is an industrial company. This is a company that uh, is involved in heavy industry, uh, is involved in um, not just heavy industry, but also manufacturing, appliances. Uh, GE effectively like made American much of American life, and especially in the post-war world, possible with the proliferation of manufacturing standards for home appliances. Um, so the company really 
gets kicked off in this golden era. And it doesn't take long for it to become probably the most one of the most innovative, widely innovative companies uh, in America. You know, Bell Labs, AT&T, uh, certainly Ford Motor. Uh, you know, th there were a lot of companies around this time that were doing great work, but GE continued to kind of shock people with what it was able to come up with. Um, so GE was the company that managed to invent the vacuum tube, x-ray tubes, x-ray machines, magnetrons, microwave systems. And you have to remember... I, I think they is, came up with industrial diamonds, too. This was, yeah, I should they, have mentioned they, this in our diamond show. But, um, yeah, they, they worked on this. They had like a skunk works, to use the Lockheed term. But they had a secret project because it's kind of a sensitive one. You know, you, you kind of figure out how to make diamonds. You don't want your competitor knowing how to do that, right? So they did it in kind of a, a secretive way, and they figured it they figured out how to make diamonds. Now the catch was, and the reason I said they're industrial diamonds is they're yellow. They're they're not these beautiful um, pieces of jewelry. So their uses are effectively for cutting and for mining things like that, uh, and they're extremely good at that. And obviously a lot uh, more preferable if you're going to do something like that, where you're going to wear out the bits and chew things up, and don't really care if they're finely cut it's much preferable to just make those artificially because it's much cheaper as opposed to buying the nice ones. So that was, uh, that was one thing they, they also did. Yeah. This is also the company that, uh, created the first commercial power station. <laughs> the first, the first, uh, locomotive, uh, electric locomotive. I, I apologize there. Uh, basically was responsible for the first voice radio broadcast effectively, uh, with a uh, actually it was a an H1B immigrant of the time, a Swedish-born engineer, uh, helped come up with this uh, Ernst Alexanderson. Um, but the company really made itself uh, the most indisposable aspect of the growing electrification and mechanization of American industry. Um, GE, on top of that, was very important in creating something that I think a lot of people take for granted now. Uh, industrial systems or systems thinking. So you create a set of standards or you create manufacturing processes or you create a workflow for diagram creation or diagram distribution, blueprint distribution. All of these things that are necessary in an industrial conglomerate or just in uh, production in general. Uh, GE was very much responsible for getting a lot of this off the ground. Um, the, this era in America was obviously when much of this work was done, you know, creating the fabric of American industry, really. Uh, but GE was very, very prominent in trying to not only create products sort of haphazardly, but then create a system around promulgation of those products and a system for further improvement on them. Uh, utilized a lot of state-of-the-art systems engineering at the time, which was the you know the usage of repla replaceable parts, of assembly line production, and uh, GE very quickly grew rapidly uh, and. Then, as many companies did in this uh, sort of 1920s era, they decided to uh, create 
much of their own uh, supply chains. So GE went around the world and was buying uh, access, access to mines, had contracts with oil producers, uh, and suddenly the company was not only making products, but it was securing its ability to make products and coming up with, again, systems on how to safely transport and utilize uh, those raw materials. Uh, so not only was it a great maker of things that employed a lot of people in a variety of professions, but it set the standard for how the country's economy was going to progress uh, into a more formalized, uh, very institutional, in industrial, uh, conglomerate economy. Now, this trickled down. It created uh, an effervescence of machine shops. Uh, it created an effervescence of small engineering firms. Uh, and so GE was then responsible, I think, for much of the proliferation of you know, small business owners and, and sort of uh, independent professionals uh, across these professions um, that came in the post-war era. The real expansion of the American economy into a very robust, very, very, very um, failover heavy economy, if you want to call it that. And this was, uh, I think, really the company's major, major contribution to, to, to the country was that it drove forward uh, the ability for the country to not only produce, but to produce well and then to keep producing and to make improvements on that production. And of course, bring a, a good life to many of its, uh, of its employees. Um, for a long time, GE was held in uh, esteem by most Americans. Um, I would say, uh, talk to your parents, definitely talk to your grandparents, uh, and they'll have very, very fond memories of General Electric, very, very likely. They will remember over the years as GE just kept coming out with you know new products, new innovations, new things that changed your life directly, home appliances, electronics, or uh, changed the lives of your state as a whole maybe with a new locomotive, new jet engine, new nuclear power plant. Um, they will remember that this company played a big role and, and was a, a relatively scandal-free company. Uh, interestingly enough, for a very long time, had avoided a lot of uh, a lot of environmental scandals, had avoided avoided some amount of labor scandals. They had some problems with, especially the appliance division, which they've sold off and mostly gotten rid of actually uh, now. But um, relative to people like Ford. Uh, or uh, other employers, GE actually had not very many um, labor disputes or labor problems. Yeah, it was generally generally seen as a, as a good company to work for, a rewarding company to work for, had a good, very good pension program, which of course is uh, part of the reason why they're in financial trouble now. Uh, but it was seen as a, sort of the shining beacon for the what the American economy ought to be. And of course, uh, much of this is being done by actual Americans. You have the odd uh, 
Scandinavian uh, emigre, I guess. But uh, th this was a genuinely American company that uh, didn't even have a lot of overseas holdings. It was uh, mostly just rooted in the United States. Um, the the problems of GE, of course, that uh, that we can we can I guess get to in a little bit, uh, don't really come until the 1980s with one of the most uh, both revered but also controversial men in corporate America, uh, Jack Welch. Um, and I know Adam is uh, not a student of Jack Welch, but I think familiar with. Uh, with Welch and his time in GE. When I was younger and when Jack Welch was still CEO of GE, he was regarded as one of the best CEOs in America, if not the world. And so I took an interest and I, I studied a little bit. I have his book. Um, I don't remember. It's a very silly title. Like It's called like Jack. <laughs> it's really simple, but <laughs> it's just him on the cover wearing a sweater. But um, it's like Bill Cosby. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I I have a really like short theory here is that the company was such an institution for so long and they they got kind of comfortable, I think, and that could be a description for many American companies and industries after the war especially uh when the state department and the People who want to uh, make money at the expense of the middle class, uh, having a decent job, decided to open up the economy to free trade. Uh, and in particular, with uh, with the post-war allies against the Soviet Union, uh, mainly Germany and Japan. And those two countries have very good companies that compete with GE and also have companies that compete with the automotive and electronics uh, and steel industries, all of which were under a hell of a lot of pressure in the 70s, especially. And after the Vietnam War ended, the government spending wasn't as prevalent to prop up these older industrial firms. And with the cheaper imports coming in, there was a lot of pressure. And I think during the 70s, uh, GE still had enough inertia to kind of get by, but their stock was really not outperforming by any means. And when Welsh took over, it was right at the beginning, it was 81, I believe, it was right at the beginning of the Reagan era, where, and if you look at Wikipedia, apparently we're still living in that era, which would make sense if you ascribe his economic policies to what we have today, which is basically neoliberalism and free trade and letting companies locate production wherever they want, wherever it's cheapest, move labor around wherever they can source it cheapest. And that's what we were just opening the show with, where they would just pick the cheapest uh, bidder for the, uh, the job. And Welsh kind of came in and I guess in that zeitgeist of corporate uh, slashing and burning. Uh, this was also the era of the big uh, leverage buyout firms, um, oh, Michael, yeah. Michael Milken, if, if wanna, the junk uh, bonds. Well, if, if, if our audience wants a really great look, the insanity of that, read um, Barbarians at the Gates. Uh -huh. That's a good uh, one. The, That's about uh, RJR buying uh, Nabisco. Yeah, right? Nabisco. Yeah. Fantastic book about the, they the made a movie about it. of uh, leverage buyouts. Yeah. I mean, you know, Wall Street kind of conglomerates all of these uh, 
these characters into Gordon Gecko, and so I think that is the sort of style of corporate leadership that was becoming in vogue. And for an old line industrial company, uh, Jack Welsh, I think, was trying to apply some of that very tough-minded philosophy, a uh, very cost-conscious philosophy to the staid industrial type companies that built America and were still lingering around by the time all the imports started kicking the shit out of most of our uh, economic champions. And so his approach was, and they called him Neutron Jack for a reason. He would slash anything that wasn't performing. He would, he would uh, either close the plant down or sell the business off. Uh, and he was very aggressive about it. And the other thing that was uh, what he, he became famous for was consistently meeting or beating earnings uh, reports. And this is what Wall Street loves, at least on paper, is that your company is growing and it is surprising you, surprising you even though it became kind of a joke that they would consistently do this, uh, they, would, they would increase the amount of money that they had reported that they were likely to make. So that would drive up the price of the, the company and the share price even more. Uh, and that happened over uh, Jack Welch's tenure to the point where GE and Microsoft were vying for the most valuable company on earth. And I think GE passed Microsoft at one point and then Microsoft passed it later. But this was well, during the Welch era. This was the 20 year reign he was in charge. So, and, and he did from a stock point of view, extremely well. Um, oh yeah. I mean, so from, uh, from April, 1981 to February 19th, 2001, GE stock climbed over 3,000% and had an average growth rate of 18.9%, which is, <laughs> as, I mean, someone did the math on, on this like old archived Forbes article I found or Fortune Mag, uh, but the the S and P growth over that period, eighty one to two thousand one, was only eight hundred ninety six percent. So Jack Welch did what every student in finance is taught to try and figure out how to do to be a master of finance: beat the market. How do you beat the market? How do you beat the S and P? Well, Jack Welch did it. Um, now. There's been a lot of criticism uh, years later that Jack Welch beat the market by effectively making GE into something that was no longer uh, an industrial giant. Uh, now, the rise of sort of the cult of, uh, of the EPS, earnings per share, that would begin under, Wel or under, uh, under Welch and go into Immelt, who was a uh, uh, at least had the balls later on to, uh, you know, confide that this was uh, a mistake ultimately and try and fix it. Uh, basic way that uh, Welch started doing this was when he got in to CEO, he had uh, uh, this this neutron jack mentality, as he called it, and he basically looked at the GE bureaucracy. In his mind, um, GE was actually too antiquated. It was operating too much 
like those industrial giants of the turn of the century. Um, it had a lot of employees. Uh, it had a lot of divisions, uh, some of which made no money, um, some of which made very little money. Lots of people who were in charge of things that, to his mind, didn't seem that important. Now, they were maybe not that important, but they were important for what GE was trying to do up to that point, which was, as I said before, maintain this massive industrial system. So the bureaucracy that he was looking at wasn't just like what we would think of corporate bureaucracy as today, which is... Uh, HR, uh, you know, th things like that. He was looking at people who were um, division two level blueprint managers, blueprint developers. He was looking at people that uh, wrote industrial control system standards. He was looking at people that created or maintained or even worked on um, maintenance operations. Uh, now, you can say that not totally relevant anymore in the 1980s we're moving beyond that system there's there's new ways to approach it but this is the world that GE had created and GE was uh, GE was doing well in the 1970s there wasn't some like horrible reason why the why he had to do the slash and burn um, but yet Welch kind of comes in and says that a uh, hundred thousand jobs or so gotta go and he did it within his first few years. He cut uh, 100,000 jobs and he went to the, his managers and he told them, fire the bottom 10% of performers each year who didn't improve. Was it 10%? So, I thought it was 5%. No, it was 10. And, and, th and this was called the Rankin Yank. Yeah. Um, now, this is how the earnings per share gets... Uh, hyperinflated, let's call it. Uh, that's part of it, I think. That's part other, of it. Others, that's part of it. But this, this, this is all of a sudden. This is how uh, the company is boosting this tremendous financial growth. And I think he had this slogan: uh, "Fix it, close it, or sell it." I think he and also wanted all business divisions to be either number one or number two in their right. industry, which, right. eh, you know, I, I would say is a decent philosophy given that you're a conglomerate and it's easy to lose focus otherwise. But, um, yeah, yeah I mean, it, it, it's not like a, it's not psychopathy to think that way, but I do think that to an extent, there is a chance that it wasn't just him either. Clearly, you know, this was a new generation of leaders at GE. Uh, they just, I don't think that they really understood what the point of one one of these kinds of conglomerated multi-division uh, giants is for. And when we talked about the same problem on our episode of Bell Labs, ironically, this is around the time when Bell Labs goes down, well, you know, two or three years later, but uh, Bell Labs had the same model. It had a ton of divisions um, that did a multitude of different things. Everything was in-house. And this presented them with an opportunity they could leverage 
a ton of their existing internal development towards integrated products. And they could pull in engineers from various products or various divisions, various specialties to work on one-off assignments or contribute to a larger innovation or uh, fix some kind of production problem. Uh, there, there were a lot of great advantages that Bell Labs had presented, and I think GE had that going for it internally. Now, Welch guts most of this, uh, starts selling off. There's a lot of there's a lot of sales of not only uh, divisions of technologies of property factories and suddenly the company's really slimming down and there was this belief i think in the 1980s well ge is trying to get in back into heavy industry uh, ge was trying to get into the defense contract uh, contracting industry which they're huge and now they make tens of billions of dollars off like last two decades off of defense contracting but at the time they really wanted to get into defense contracting and heavy industry because uh there was this assumption that america had kind of been uh in the 1970s had looked away from its heavy industry and there might be new, new demand to redo a lot of it um but very quickly not so much of course, the defense contracting is there due to a lot of Reagan's policies, and GE does play a role in that. Um, but GE, in the 80s, uh, starts closing its nuclear power plants down. It starts getting rid of some of its uh, power station generators. It starts selling off, like I said, various divisions or products or just uh, patents and IP, and uh, obviously slashing a lot of employees. So then GE is left with this uh, lesser company, and they immediately go into an acquisition game. Uh, they buy RCA, but they try to get RCA, and the idea was that they were going to get uh, NBC. And then Welch starts targeting financial companies. And of course, a lot of these financial companies are being targeted because there's this belief among GE that they need to create uh, capital generation programs for buyers for products. Uh, so there's this thing you started to notice in the late 70s and early 80s, and that suddenly a uh, lot of companies, state governments, various bodies had more difficulty getting a hold of liquid cash. Uh, there was a lot of inflationary problems around this time. Uh, there were a lot of issues, money velocity, the Federal Reserve. So GE looked at that and said, well, we should start things like GE Capital. We should try and create um, the ability for uh, people to basically buy loans or get loans from us to buy our product. And then we can charge some interest and, and all these sorts of things. Um, and this worked somewhat well for a while Often uh, this kind of formed into what uh, became infamously known now as GE Capital. Um, but GE kind of trucked along, even tried to get into the credit card business, the insurance business, the, uh, the movie business for some time. And um, of course, by the 90s, uh, they really they really tried to, I think, get into the defense contracting game 
This becomes one of the few times when they have a big scandal. They actually plead guilty to defrauding the government on uh, on defense, made some defense contracts. And uh, a lot of this was kind of papered over, I think, because Welch was continuing to deliver the best results on Wall Street year over year. Uh, the man was unstoppable. GE was unstoppable from Wall Street's point of view. And of course, this culminated in the year 2000, uh, where GE was officially the most valuable company uh, in the world for a time. Uh, of course, fast forward to today, GE, <laughs> I think, was kicked off the stock exchange. Uh, well, no, no, no. They they were kicked out of the Dow index. Oh, they were kicked out of the you Dow. You could still buy and sell the shares, but it the, the Dow yeah. only has thirty slots, and I, it was very um, embarrassing if I were yeah. to be running the company because th this is a stolid, multi-billion-dollar piece of American industrial history and historically historical uh, industrial might and. It's been on the Dow for more than 100 years. And you know who replaced it? A frigging drugstore chain, Walgreens. I, I just find that to be so sad and, and just, yeah, that, it, well, it's, it, it's, it's an I embarrassment. Think it, I think it, it speaks to something interesting about the evolution of the American economy that GE uh, was maybe a lagging indicator for. Um, the transition from an industrial economy, an industrial company, to a amorphous services-driven economy and services-driven company. I mean, GE was GE. I think that they've abandoned this only recently, but it's come out. They had like their own management school. Like they were they were charging people a ton of money. To yeah, they did. That's right. Training and they had a that. big, big consulting service. It's they were the, running behind the scenes. Yeah, it was the I mean, IBM's of, in that uh, game now earnings. too. It's like IBM's yeah. just a big consulting service. Mm -hmm. um, they like they they just totally lost the farm, and I think that being replaced by Walgreens is poetic. Because like what is what is Walgreens? Like Walgreens is this amorphous thing that sells like cheap plastic shit. Like from China. I never go to drugs. Walgreens. Like I go there maybe if I have some horrible infection and I have to get something desperately. But the people who go to a store like that, uh, I think it sums up what America's become. It's it's a high time preference doesn't really think ahead that much about buying stuff you can get at a store like that for way cheaper at a discount store. Uh, and I, it's a convenience store, basically. That's all it is. Um, yeah. I, I don't, there's nothing in there that you can't get somewhere else at a, at a better price, arguably. And I, I guess everybody's sick, so they have to go get drugs too. Oh, yeah. Well, you can go to Walgreens and, and load up on junk food and, and <laughs> like rent you know rent a movie and then also get your drugs to fix your you know multiple comorbidities or whatever yeah i mean I, ge like in the in you know in the in interestingly in the 80s uh the appliance division was still one of the few divisions uh or was actually i shouldn't say it like that was i think the leading division for the company in terms of revenue generation and 
due to some of the economic problems that we had, I had mentioned and in the 80s, early 80s, uh, GE was actually, again, once again, in, an innovator, and they were one of the first to try and automate uh, a factory floor. They even had robots. They had, uh, they had like 38 of these uh, robots involved in their uh, one of their appliance manufacturing floors. Uh, I'm sorry, actually, 50. Appliance Park had, uh, had 50. And uh, they had this $38 million project to automate uh, a dishwasher assembly line. And they were going to use robotics, ultrasonic welders, uh, point of use things, you know, inventory control systems, barcode scanners. So they're now a fully integrated, uh, digitally driven assembly line. And it works well for time. And uh, GE says, well, we can sell this sort of engineering service because our engineers figured this out first. Uh, we can make revenue off of selling this service out to companies, going to companies and doing this for them. Um, and I think that, you know, this being the year that Welch takes over, uh, I think it's somewhat apocryphal because uh, the company, um, for better or for worse, is starting to lose its identity. Uh, it, the identity it had forged over um, 80 to 90 years in the United States. And it's becoming a, it's trying to become one of the companies we think of now as being modern, uh, mostly automated manufacturing, mostly services driven, um, very, very concerned with the stock market fluctuations day in, day out, um, sort of chaotic C-suite leadership scandals. Um, and I think, and also heavy involvement with the US government. Uh, uh, Starting in, I think, the early 2000s, I had uh, managed to find um, someone had the site military industrial complex actually uh, spends time looking at uh, contracts across the board um, from the U.S. military and for the U.S. government in general. And GE has gotten over 30, well over 30 billion dollars at least um, from government contracting. Mostly military contracting. Wasn't that just for their engines? I mean, I don't know what else they would make for the military. Yeah, I mean, it's predominantly engines, but they've started to get into integrated systems, life it, science, and their energy stuff devices. too. I mean, the I base mean, has got to run on something. They they build um, electric uh, gas turbines, which probably yeah. can be used for grid down scenarios for you know uptime requirements at sensitive installations, things like that. Yeah. So I think, you know, recently they uh, they landed, uh, well, they landed one $707 million fighter and fighter aircraft MFS contract. And then they had another accumulated set of contracts for various engines and all kinds of integrated hardware uh, for $476 million. Um, so you're, you're starting to see, you know, the company still going through this identity crisis and i think the identity crisis was has been was really brought to the forefront in 2008 obviously um the uh the infamous call that uh jeff emelt made 
to uh, the Secretary of the Treasury uh, at the time, Hank Paulson, and uh, basically said, uh, by the end of the week, we'll be out of cash and we'll be dead. And the there was a realization, I think, in 08 that the company had way too much under its wing. Um, it had huge, huge problems with GE Capital. It had uh, made a lot of bad investments. It had gone on an acquisition spree, but had nothing to show for it. Its organic growth was actually uh, low and also being manipulated. Uh, analysts were frequently calling out uh, Imelt and uh, the CFO on calls for not presenting adequate financial figures uh, from like 2003 to 08. You know, this is just a yearly thing. Um, uh, the, the man who started PIMCO even uh, even back in 2002 called GE, uh, uh, basically implied it was somewhat a fraudulent operation or that uh, their finances were fraudulent. Um, so I, I think that there... There's been a, a this has been a long time coming, and this crisis of identity has been going on for over 20 years. But now, uh, really, there, there's this question of like, is this just uh, a company that no longer is going to make home appliances in the United States? It's no longer going to de to deliver a lot of uh, industrial chemicals, industrial control systems. It's not going to deliver a lot of specialized products. Uh, it's going to focus mostly on healthcare, medical devices, and military contracts. Uh, you know, is it going to really slim down? How does it pay for all those massive pension promises that it made all those decades ago when it was a different company? Uh, I think that, again, as I've said multiple times, GE kind of symbolizes the, the ultimate crisis in America right now. You know, a big chunk of the American industrial economy is devoted towards healthcare and is devoted towards uh, military contracts. And I think that GE being a, a company that sort of just follows the lead of where the country goes, that was founded in an era and, and just sort of got swept up with the general mood of the country into the, the mood of industrialization. Uh, it it could just be that the company's not going to die. Like I'm not one of those people that's going to go on CNBC and like uh, <laughs> rip my hair out screaming about the EBITDA value of GE or whatever the fuck Jim Cramer does. Uh, I don't think that I don't think GE will die or go away. Um, I just think that it will become like some of its former competitors back in the 50s and 60s. It'll just uh, like IBM, it will become sort of an afterthought, a company that delivers some things that are still important, um, but mostly spends its time winding down many, many decades of significant operations. Well, let's try to dissect what happened. I mean, the company was doing so well, and then their stock was basically trading at, I don't know, 50 bucks, and now it's down to seven. Something something like that. Uh, it's it's a catastrophic decline for a company that has been around for a long time, and so you have to really ask why, what happened. Um, I mean, I, I don't think the price of the the share was this low since probably 
before Jack Welsh. So that was a good 40 years ago. So how do you wipe out all that value in the course of 20 years uh, after Welsh builds it up? Or does he? And that, I think that's kind of what's interesting about understanding what happened here. The, the guy that really, I think, caught a lot of people's attention with GE was this guy named uh, Marco Polis. I want to say Markopolis, but let's just call him Marco Polo. Um, he's this guy. <laughs> I think his name is actually Markopolis or something. He's Greek. Yeah, he's they keep saying it different, Greek. though, um, on the... Uh, financial shows but so anyway um this guy he's a forensic accountant and i guess if you're really into wall street stuff this is basically a interesting specialty which i have no problem with i think they serve a, a valuable function uh, as hans mentioned he was involved in uncovering madoff's um fraud uh, that he ran a hedge fund where people were getting these very suspicious fifteen well, percent uh, return numbers, and you can kind of make that analogy to how GE was giving these very consistent and arguably suspicious numbers because the economy doesn't always go in one direction; it goes up and down. And how does the company not have those problems too? But uh, well, he he claimed. I remember him. Uh, I watched this documentary about it, but he claimed once that. Within an hour, uh, he had been hired, I can't remember by who, by a competitor to try and figure out how Madoff was making this kind of money because they wanted to figure out what his model was and use it. And he said within an hour of looking at it, he thought, this is a fraud. This has to be fraudulent. Like, there's no way this can exist. And then he said he spent four hours or so on top of that building his mathematical model to explain how he thought it was a fraud. And then he went to the SEC multiple times, and they ignored him. Uh, of course, this was revealed later that Bernie Madoff was uh, friends with many uh, people over at the SEC, I guess, and was uh, well-liked over there. Um, and, of course, many people on Wall Street actually knew Madoff was, uh, was a fraud, and everyone was just kind of pretending this wasn't happening. Uh, I think J.P. Morgan Chase had uh, had gotten involved with him and uh, actually got hit with some pretty severe fines later on for, for doing so. But uh, but yeah, he uh, he's the guy that figured out, uh, he claims, the Madoff scam in five hours and was able to uh, launch an investigation into it. Yeah, I, I, the basis of his argument seems to be that they were they were undervaluing the liabilities in their insurance division. Uh, and ML, the guy after Welsh, uh, who had the tenure for the longest era of the post Welsh CEOs, he was there till what, 2017 or so. Um, he tried to get rid of a lot of these capital, uh, type or the finance type companies in the cap GE capital division, uh, to focus on the industrial businesses. And, they got rid of a lot of these uh, companies, these divisions within the finance arm that uh, went to pretty well-known names like uh, Wells Fargo and a few others. But one of the criticisms also was that, and I guess Wall Street was pressuring him to do this. I don't quite know exactly the, the exact sequence of events, but 
ML would do a lot of deals. And, and so there's, there's two things. So one, he would do a lot of deals that were just bad. Like they, they lost money on them. Well, he made a lot of acquisitions and he took out a lot of debt to do it. I mean, by 2019, they had $121 billion in debt and like year over year had declining revenues. Yeah. Like they, they were trying to, um, they were trying like this was this was what I was saying earlier. People were pointing this out back in 2002. Like, where is the organic growth? Show us the organic growth. Like, don't show us. It, people had gotten tired of it and were starting to question it, and they realized like, oh, this company is really lagging in organic growth, and they papered that over with a lot of other financial fancy financial metrics, but. In order, in order to finance like the the acquisition of a lot of these products, a lot of these companies, all kinds of things, uh, they had taken out a ton of loans, and they were one hundred twenty one billion dollars in debt last year. And they had to do um, uh, they had to do a t- massive asset sale. And they had to sell off like some of the better parts of their new uh, division base, including a lot of their biopharma and biotech stuff, just to because that was what, that was what people wanted to buy. And I, you know, I don't know how they got into this situation entirely, but my understanding is that like you're right, you know, ML made a ton of bad deals, uh, mostly because he was being pressured by Wall Street to like yeah get growth up. The the bio and, one I'm not yeah. super familiar with, just because I. I don't, I'm not a biologist and I don't quite understand the drug industry. It seems like a very corrupt industry and I, I've never really put much time into understanding how those things work. But the, um, the, the other divisions do make more sense to me, uh, even the finance one, which is somewhat opaque. But uh, and, and that was one of the reasons they were trying to get rid of it because the analysts were complaining about it. And I think some people were suspicious too that they were using the finance division because you can do a lot of very weird things like uh amortization schedules and like how long is something going to last and you can move you know money around to liabilities and insurance companies you can just do all this stuff to make your numbers uh especially if you have a large uh finance division and i think getting rid of that was an attempt to increase the transparency of their business part of that though also increased the cyclicality of the business because having finance a lot of uh, GE capital. I used to have this credit card and it had nothing to do with anything GE traditionally would like make or manufacture, but it happened to be backed up on the back end by GE capital. And I was like, that's weird. And the interface was terrible by the way. Um, but it was like yeah. a payment payment website and it just looked terrible. And you could tell like they just had really, um, who knows if they're H1Bs or Americans, but, Let's be honest, a company like that just doesn't attract the best talent these days. And so you could tell just from the look of things. But okay, so the divisions that Emelt was playing with was the the capital one. He sold off a bunch of stuff, but he had to keep uh, a, a segment of the insurance business. So they were writing these um, these policies for people who, I think they're healthcare policies. And they couldn't get rid of the, the ones that had the worst uh, risk uh, profiles. And that has come out to be one of the things that uh, Marco Polis was saying was actually underreported as a huge, massive liability. Uh, the other ones that uh, Melt did was he sold NBC to Comcast for what many people say was about $20 billion too little. 
uh, and then Comcast stock proceeded to take off. They probably knew how to manage NBC better for one, but uh, that didn't look like a good deal. And then he got into oil and gas, which he then had to get rid of, I think probably because there was a need to make uh, debt payments on other parts of the company uh, or just that that part of the company. But they just had to make their uh, their payments. They had to sell something. And they got into oil at basically like one of the intermediate peaks. And then this is like maybe like 2013, 2012, something like that. I think they bought Baker Hughes, which is a big uh, drilling rig uh, service provider, if I'm not mistaken. And then oil proceeded to crash and then they they had to dump it. And it's just, they're increasing bad deals. Okay. Number one, number two, they're concentrating more in this uh, industrial stuff, which is very cyclical because of the capital intensive nature of the products they make. Uh, People have to be very comfortable financially and economically to make those purchases. And if something like this happens now with like the virus shutting everything down, increasing uncertainty, people don't really want to put a billion dollars aside to buy locomotives because it just doesn't look uh, rosy right now. So things have to be going well. And then those types of businesses tend to ramp up a little bit ahead uh, of a recovery or during a recovery, they, they, they outperform and then they underperform during downturns. So it's very like volatile. And well, it, I think that that's, that was ultimately the logic behind the finance divisions and, and like the lending divisions. Uh, and they had to sell off their airplane finance division last year amongst other assets. Um, but you start to well, that, that might've been a good deal. Given how, well, how much yeah, it got I worse, realize what was really going on there, and what you said made me think of is like this is super cyclical, and the American economy just isn't what it used to be for a variety of reasons. So, so GE is suffering due to that, and they're not able to get people to buy these things up front, and they're using financing operations. So, that they, I mean, some of it is manipulation. They're trying to show Wall Street, hey, we have sales, we have revenue growth, we have projected revenue growth, we have, you know, the all, accounts receivable, all this stuff. And they were doing this for their transportation business, and they're doing this for some of their bigger healthcare stuff. Like, it, you know, it was just, it was insane. And so, spinning off the healthcare, spinning off the rail, spinning off all the other transportation stuff, and a lot of this... And then this pissed off Wall Street even more last year because they're like, what are you doing? Like those are actually some of the more if you look at just the balance sheet. Well, healthcare they should have kept. I don't I didn't know if they you, got if rid you look of that. At, but if you look at just the balance sheet and the cash flow for that stuff, that is what was making money. The power division was not make is not making a lot of money. A lot of their renewables are like yeah, the windmills. Every not, I mean, every GE and, and, annual report probably has had a, a windmill on the cover of it because they've been trying to do that for yeah, probably the past like, I don't know ten years. Oh, oh, what is oil at? I I drove by the gas station earlier. I was saying a dollar eighty five. Like, do you really think anyone wants a a fucking renewable wind turbine right now? <laughs> Well, in their defense, I mean, who the hell would have known that oil know, would literally I mean, go I, negative? I, I you know? they, they really, well, first, they were, ML, they, they should have been smart enough to ignore those people who were like, you have a, you have a corporate social responsibility to do renewables. And they, they, they made a terrible mistake. 
because not only did they get involved in it, they got involved big. And they, as you said, they put out a massive marketing effort trying oh, yeah. to big buy time. it because they real they had to have realized in the you know mid twenty tens or early twenty tens. Oh shit! Well, <laughs> like, it, it it's not something that I would say in kind of a vacuum would be a bad idea problem i think is honestly they're just up against global competition and they just i don't know they're, they're i mean the chinese are basically the problem i think well, for this yeah. type of stuff i mean all this industrial equipment you're you're going up against low-cost competitors and um you know i'm not privy to the differences between you know a windmill wind turbine from Qingdao, whatever they make over there and one from uh Pittsburgh, or I don't know where they're assembling, probably on Ohio. I think they make some jet engines there. Uh, there. There are overlaps. I mean, it's an energy type business, and you have these rotating assemblies that need to be intricately assembled so they don't fall apart. Um, but it, it's tough. Uh, and it's just a, a very competitive global market. Well, I think the other major problem is that, like in 2007, for example, um, infrastructure was actually one of their divisions making a ton of money. But, you know, there hasn't been a lot of big American infrastructure development in 10 years. That's another thing Trump hasn't done. I mean, for God's sakes, like the guy can't even put up a few bricks on the southern border. I mean, like if I were him, I would have driven down there with a flatbed and gotten out the the wheelbarrow and the mortar myself. And for God's sakes, you know, it's so basic. Yeah, and then you know the other thing he was talking about was rebuilding the roads and all this all this stuff that is for the yeah. airports. He kept talking about the airports being bad and LaGuardia flying in. It's an embarrassment. They got the sign on a couple of two by fours. They're falling off. You go to Dubai, the runways are paved in glass. And I'm like, well, where is it, dude? Like, there's nothing. I mean, fuck. Like, I, I just yeah. I well, don't know. I, this country just, is a joke. I mean, my my point is like the company. In 2017, it's like one of its last like leading industries is power. Power industry has been like declining year over year and how much it generates. And, uh, you know, they sold off their um, a bunch of their appliances and to a Chinese company, uh, Hire and Hire. I have. H A I E R. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. That, that's a, yeah. okay. Uh, so they, that I mean, that was the microwave, the fridge, the washer. Now, I will say that maybe part of what went on in the run up to 08, and this is a theory that I have not seen totally postulated elsewhere. GE was unknowingly, or somewhat knowingly, because they were getting involved in the subprime business. Uh, mortgage business, but somewhat unknowingly being buoyed by the housing bubble. Because what do you do when you buy a house in America? You got to get the appliances. You got to get all the smart appliances. Yeah. And you, you got you to gotta get the dishwasher. That's and true. That, the problem, TV, again, is the, the Asian yeah. imports cutting the margins to probably negative. I know. I understand. But I, I think that part of what got them into trouble was uh, – they might not have been looking critically at what the underlying fundamentals of the American economy is that they thought, hey, we're doing great, appliance business is doing well, we can, we have the collateral, 
we have the necessary uh, assets and the necessary finances for leverage to do these leverage buyouts, to take on more debt, because revenue growth projections for appliances show us making a ton of money by 2008 and so, or 2010, and so you can understand the GE, early GE of Jeff Immel doing this stuff, getting involved in these deals, because everything seemed to be totally fine. And I think that they unknowingly benefited from the develop from the massive uh, housing market and subsequent commercial real estate bubble. Um, well, I'm looking at their um... from 2000 to 2010, basically. So 2005, well, 2004, 2005, there was a big uh, divestiture and reorganization of various businesses at GE. So the biggest one in 2004 was uh, commercial finance, and the biggest one in 2005 was infrastructure. Uh, They sold off a huge chunk of their insurance business. Uh, They... Apparently, they, they got rid of transportation, but I, I don't think that makes sense. They probably put it into infrastructure. Uh, they, they still had NBC. I'm just going down the list in like descending order, so the first ones are bigger. Uh, and the consumer one, where the appliances was, it's, it's probably looking at this like less than 10% of the overall business. And so in terms of the housing the correlation with the housing market, it's probably not super big, uh, but it is geared more towards the overall macro economy, I would say, because of the infrastructure and industrial emphasis. Um, those are the top two, respectively, in 2005. And going forward, it was I think that was the trend. Remembering all the press releases, they could just kept talking about windmills and things like that. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know exactly what got canceled in their order books, when the financial crisis happened, but it had something to do with just everybody, I think, hitting the pause button and not buying yeah. heavy equipment. Well, I, I think that, you know, ultimately, the fundamental problem, maybe at the core of all of this, is that GE, um, it's, it's like a jellyfish in a hurricane. And it doesn't really have the ability to propel itself in one direction or the other. It's kind of getting thrashed around by the circumstances of the United States. Yes, you can blame uh, Welch, Immelt, other people, uh, and you can blame bad decisions and, you know, across the board. But I feel like, you know, on top of that, GE is a company that is fundamentally an industrial company and in a post-industrial America yep. and, and a non-expanding America. Their America, business, it, it's very stagnant. Their, their business it, specialty yeah. is not aligned with the growth in types of right. industries I mean, that are growing in America today. Now, I wish that was the opposite, but that's just the reality and the growth industry is like healthcare and medical device manufacturing that's why i don't understand why they got rid of healthcare that made yeah. zero sense to well me. I, like, I think that i think that ultimately that's what people were willing to buy yeah exactly people, they were desperate were they had to, to buy get money people they don't to raise capital people don't want to buy yeah. people don't want to buy the power division because they're looking yeah. at that like yeah we're not doing it you know america's not expanding anymore <laughs> we already have power well, for sure. well, the waistlines are expanding and 
our uh, low IQ population is expanding leaps and bounds. And <laughs> all the all the horrible, well, but not not in the way not in the way that not in the way that it used to. I mean, they're all people are just expanding inside of the same cities that already have electric infrastructure. So why would we need to build more of it? Yeah. I think that that must be the logic of why certain divisions got bought off. Uh, and certain divisions didn't and it's also maybe because there was a branding aspect like if GE sells its fucking power division well for god's sake the name of the like company legally, exactly. is this even allowed to be called General Electric anymore <laughs> like, it would have been the ultimate embarrassment if they yeah. had to sell off the power division. no I think they should keep that I mean come yeah. on you know no 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 I, I think that they should too yeah, but I yeah. you know I mean, I'm, I suspect that the bit that the, the arms that were sold were the ones that people really wanted and that most <clears throat> growth potential, and that would be healthcare predominantly, which is sad because we know what's causing that. People are vastly unhealthy in this yeah. country, and we have a ton of old people that uh, you know need constant care, and um, so that's that's the growth of the American economy is delivering healthcare now. I think it's the sixth of the economy. Um, yep. It would be interesting to see what was the share of the economy in 1892 when GE was formed. Uh, oh, healthcare? 19- yeah, healthcare. Probably like 2%. <laughs> Probably not even that. You know? Yeah. You'd like uh, throw throw a couple of uh, coins at the uh, traveling on foot, by the way, doctor to your house and make house calls. <laughs> I mean, these hospitals are, are like temples of doom today. Like every time I talk to somebody who's been through processed by the healthcare system it's like a horror show like well, it's I, fascinating I, because you go in there and like i have not been in a hospital in four years five I mean, years the, the best healthcare you can get is by eating right exercising yep. don't put junk in your body don't do risky ridiculously stupid things and don't you know, don't sleep around promiscuously. I mean, like, where else are you going to get, you know, these horrible things that uh, ail most people? You know, they... Yeah, anyway, I, I can go down the well, list, but... I, I was going to say, I think last time I was in the hospital, four or five years ago, terrible experience. Uh, certainly saw quite a few of those H1A visas walking around. Um, but, you know, I, I think I did see some various machines that had a G on them, all kinds. Yeah, they make MRIs. That's the complex, thing. yeah. Um, you know, imagery machines and integrated sensors and all kinds of things. And I'm sure GE has roles or used to uh, manufacture all kinds of integrated circuits and just all kinds of work that maybe other companies branded, but it went into there. But, you know, my point is like, you go into these hospitals, and that's where you might today, maybe last year, have seen the mo- you would have been surrounded by products that had GE on them. 50 years ago, 60 years ago, even maybe 40 years ago, you uh, were surrounded by products in your daily life that would have had GE on them. And you would have been delivered the services and the and the, it, the resources and the quality of life that you enjoyed by products that had a GE logo on them your local power station the locomotive that brought resources to your city the uh, the microwave in your living room the dishwasher all of it would have had uh, even the TV 
that have had a GE logo on it. And now, you know, you, you live in kind of, we live in this like mausoleum. And as we're courted off to, uh, to die in the, or just to suffer in these like horrible, disgusting hospitals now, uh, you are, you will see the last vestiges of like what used to represent America, uh, as you uh, get infected with, uh, some sort of MRSA virus and uh, slowly be mistreated by uh, H1A visa holders while, uh, you know, you, you think about a time when your grandparents used to actually have products and have things that were made by other Americans that delivered something real. It's not for me to say you love me. It's not for me to say you'll always care. Hold you fast and press your lips to mine and dream that love will last as far as I can see. This is Speaking just for me, it's ours to share. Perhaps the glow of love will grow with every passing day, or we may never meet again. It's not for me to say And speaking just for me It's ours to share Perhaps the glow of love will grow with every passing day, or we may never meet again, but then it's not for me to say.